Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations, and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse who trained in the social sciences and an education writer and researcher in the health professions. I've been thinking about, writing about, and teaching about medicine, health, and education for most of my adult life. And I'm endlessly fascinated about the interplay of these concepts in our lives. I also love to listen to people's stories about their educational wins and glean insights into what drives my colleagues in the continuing medical education field. And so I created this podcast to share stories as well as resources and tools of the education trade with anyone whose work involves providing education for health professionals. I invite you to listen with me. Audrey Torno is Managing Partner at Excalibur Medical Education. Like many people in medical education, she didn't plan on a career in this field, but she finds she keeps coming back to her own education to create a unique path that is infused with creativity and that values failure as a learning tool. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. I'm here today with Audrey Tarno, who is Managing Partner at Excalibur Medical Education. I'm excited to talk to Audrey about how she found her way into the education world and medical education in particular, and talk a little bit about some of the things that drives her and informs her creative approach to supporting learners in medical education. Welcome, Audrey. Why, thank you, Alex. This is awesome. So let's start by talking a little bit about your journey into medical education. Yeah, everybody has their story of how we got here and no one majored in CME and then got their first job in CME. It just it's mostly everyone's backed into it in an odd way. So for mm-hmm. me, got an uh, English degree at Rutgers University and did not follow the education track and ended up working at Ethan Allen, a furniture store and oh, was wow. entertaining. Yeah. yeah. Working with uh, interior designers and seeing how they really uh, interestingly worked with a variety of different clients with different needs. And you realize how people just create their homes to be environments in which they want to, you know, smile every day. And then responded to an ad in the paper for a meeting coordinator. And interestingly, it was like, can you do the following few things? But it was medical education. And my mother had worked in a hospital for my entire life. And so it was like, following down an interesting path of I'm going into something medical, but I don't need to know medicine. And I think that's where I spent the first year in my, what would become my CME career going, are you sure I'm the right person because I don't have a medical background? And I think there's a lot of questions that fall into that, but being able to communicate with people clearly and work with faculty members and just handle some basic logistics at that point 
were kind of how I entered into the world. And my first on-site project was in San Diego and it was my first business trip and I think first time I flew by myself and I remember working with someone in the hotel to run off a copy on an overhead projector like transparency for a faculty member (laughs) and that's where things were 20 years ago because it was either that or a carousel of slides, and it feels so antiquated right now, but that was how things started. And for listeners who might be a little bit younger than Audrey and I, I'll make <laughs> sure to put a link in the show notes about what transparencies are. We're almost in a world where there are no ads in print papers anymore, almost. No. So, yeah, so that world that you describe is not a world that somebody who's new to continuing medical education would necessarily recognize because the focus 20 years ago, as you intimated, was much more on, I guess, planning and meeting and thinking about CME in those terms. And now the focus is very much on education strategy and instructional design and making learning accessible for people who are working in in healthcare. How then does your background or how do you find that your background in English has informed the way you approach education design and delivery? Interestingly, I took a class about film and literature and how books translated into movies. And the professor shared with us that in order to capture something on film for the purposes of a movie, it it costs money. So there really isn't anything in films that we watch that's just there by just some random circumstance. It's all planned. It's all meant to be there. There's thought given to the point of view of the camera. And if there's an extra who's coming onto screen and off screen, like there's a purpose. It's not just to occupy us for a few minutes because something had to be coordinated in order to do that. And I think that's something that as time has gone on, I've kind of reflected up. When we plan education, it has become something that is everything has a purpose because there's a cost affiliated with it. And so planning it out and knowing what we want, starting with the end in mind, has become more critical than ever. I love that focus on intentionality and that connection with film and bringing books to life through film because a lot of learning at least from my standpoint, is literally about bringing to life things that can be very static and dry on paper. I do want to circle back around to print, but how do you personally define good learning for adults and especially for people who are working in healthcare? From an adult perspective, I would say, I know that the adult learning theory is about adults are really seeking the education that they need. But I think right now, and especially given the way the world has changed in the last six, nine, 12 months, we're being driven by a lot of external factors. And some some of the learning that we're doing is is definitely driven by needs to better support our lives and our careers. And, and healthcare workers at this point are 
being hit with the need for education as an additional layer to what they were doing. I think we were watching, you know, shortages in maybe primary care because people are getting specialized and getting mm-hmm. specialized in something seems like the advantage to you as a patient to go to someone who intimately knows what you are dealing with and what options that you have. That's incredibly important, but from a, a learning perspective as adults, we may have our own thoughts and plans of the things that we'd like to learn more about just to grow ourselves. And then external forces kind of hit us. And sometimes they can redirect what now becomes a priority for our education. And I think it's a balance right now of trying to strive for what people need. What's your sense been? And for listeners, this episode maybe in 2020 or 2021, we're not Mm -hmm. quite sure yet, but we're still in the middle of COVID pandemic and the world has changed rapidly, as we all know, in the last six or seven months. What's your sense then of what learners are looking for in their education in this very particular time? I think we're looking for the most current information And I I hope that everyone is continuing to look at things with the knowledge that what information becomes available to us today could change tomorrow. And science is so rapidly evolving, never more so than now. And so I think it's keeping things as brief as they can be so that we can absorb them into our lives and continue going with what we need to do. Uh, healthcare, the field itself, they're still dealing with patients, but there's, they need to take care of themselves. They may have families that they need to take care of. They need to stay on top of what's changing in terms of current crisis issues. And they still need to continue educating themselves on those disease states or areas where they're currently working. So it's, you can't table certain sections of your education. I think we've just kind of piled a little bit more on. So finding ways to make them palatable. Um, in terms of length, in terms of format, creating for educational designers to ensure that we're coming up with the best way to convey the knowledge or skills that have to come across in our education, but also keeping in mind that this person might need it in a podcast format so they can listen while they're taking care of something else. Someone else may just need device-free time. So uh, will we see a resurgence of print materials because people need to take a screen break? We talk about virtual fatigue, yet I know right now so many providers and partners out there are seeing larger metrics than ever in online activities. And so we're showing we're versatile and that we can adapt to what's needed, but we need to continue to do that and not stop thinking about all of the different ways in which people learn. That's interesting. So I'm wondering then, what are you seeing? So there's a couple of things there. One is the notion of there's a wider range of support that education needs to provide at the moment because of where healthcare learners are in their own personal lives. It's not just their professional context. And then, as you mentioned, there's the the virtual fatigue So what are some of the ways that you're seeing or some of the shifts that you've seen in the last few months that really try to creatively engage with where learners are and the challenges they may be facing in their personal lives and getting around that um, virtual approach? 
I think that's still evolving. And I think the next, you know, three to six months will be very telling as we see the development of activities that had to change midstream and we start to get to measure some of those. Will we have created something that was effective or more effective because we had to change its format? I think that finding out from our healthcare provider partners that we're working with during the development of education, what's resonating with their coworkers, where they're finding those challenges to be. I think, you know, we've seen everything kind of flip to virtual, but now it's, do I want to be on camera? Am I just a listener? What type of downloadable resources do I have? There, there's so many facets. And I think on the other hand, We've got so many different people thinking creatively. They're thinking outside the box. How do we incorporate gamification? How do we utilize infographics? Um, How do we give people a little bit more ability to navigate through content on their own? Mm -hmm. Yet we're still trying to make sure that as people who are designing education, that we have some way of measuring things. It can't be a free-for-all. I mean, it could be but then we wouldn't really have too much data. We could say, we could show you what everybody did, but drawing correlations or seeing what really worked and where areas are that we can improve will become more challenging. So I I think right now, seeing a lot of engagement with people, I think in general, we need to continue to keep in mind that everything is going to continue to change and evolve. And the more creative we are, We've got more ideas to draw upon, but we also have to kind of test what we're doing and see if it's truly effective. So I think it's all, it may be a perfect time for pilot projects, you know, keeping them small in scale and testing them out. I think people are being pushed outside their comfort zone and that's a really good thing. We may develop things that are just different and I think we're going to have failures and that is totally fine sharing that information though like so we tried this and guess what I wouldn't do it again like this right um here's what has to change about it so kind of you know it's like a little butterfly cycle here all the time you know we're a caterpillar we're, we're gonna cocoon ourselves and figure out what worked and what didn't work and we reinvent ourselves somehow a little differently I love that analogy so a couple of things there you've talked about effectiveness and measurement and metrics a few times now And the other thing that I think that you mentioned there that I want to circle back to is sharing, failure. So let's start with effectiveness. What is, you know, what does that mean to you? What do you see as effective ways to measure effectiveness? I think we need to make sure when we're coming to the table to design education that we're asking a lot of questions at the beginning where or how we're going to evaluate things. Is it a question? Is it pre-post tests? Is it going to be interactive questions? Is it just seeing how people do on their first response or how many times it takes them to truly get to the correct answer? So I think from a planning process, everyone has done tremendous work on trying to evaluate things. But I think one of the most important assets that we have is our ability to kind of stop two or three months into an activity's life cycle and double check on things. Right. And and adjust as needed. And I think that's the strength where we are. It, there, there was a time where your first evaluation of an activity was upon its conclusion. And yeah. we're, we're so remiss if that's 
what anyone is still doing. It, it is about testing the waters. So figuring out where should this question really be placed and then checking in on it and seeing, does it need to be moved? I also think having partners, whether it be vendors you're working with or faculty members or, or you know, an accredited provider partner, kind of keeping everybody on that same page too. Like we're not going to launch this and walk away. Right. You're going to hear from me in eight weeks. We're going to spot check on things. And if it's doing what we planned or hoped for, then we'll let it keep going. But it's our chance to kind of check ourselves. Mm-hmm. One of or one of the pieces of work that the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions has done over the last couple of years is, I think it was in the context of a quality improvement survey with follow-up focus groups that was fielded to members. And one of the things that emerged from that was the challenge of working with partners. So, and you mentioned just a moment ago how important it is to be working with partners. How has the ability of educators within the CME world changed in order to prepare them to work more fluidly and intimately with partners? I think it's been an ongoing struggle for everyone. And when I've sat in on presentations in the past on how to better work with anyone else in in your group, it's a lot about defining roles Mm -hmm. and trying to keep people in their particular lane, but also being simultaneously open to ideas and, and joint communication. So I think there has to be a a lot of conversations up front. And I think people are getting better at that. Then there's the ability to improve how you work together when you do your second, third, and fourth activity. But it's always that first one. It's the first opportunity for that joint partnership that always is the most challenging. So I think it's listening to experience from other people. If you're partnering with them, you brought them to the table because they bring something in that you don't have that level of expertise. And so trusting one another on what you're going to be working on, uh, listening, and I think then meeting the deliverables that you set are kind of critical, very critical. But I'm also going to say that it is the contingency plan portion of things that comes into the activity flow as you're designing it. We are going to revisit things, right? And and see what's working and what's not. And so I think building that in a lot to either your costs or your agreements, I've had the experience of working with different partners where they say, okay, I will provide you draft one and then one or two sets of revisions and then a final copy. And I think some partner agreements would benefit from that so that you could also say, we're going to design the activity. We're going to get it ready to launch. And please, we're building into this like one or two potential revisions in an activity's life cycle so that everyone still stays invested. So it's a very formative approach to relationship building, maintenance, uh, development, And all of the things that you've talked about there are things that healthcare professionals have to do as they work in teams, define roles, create strategies for communication, share openly, revisit, you know, the approach to problem solving, adjust, yes, be nimble. It's interesting. But I did also want to kind of pick up that thread of, you talked about sharing failure, how how effective do you think our field is 
in openly discussing failure because failure is it's such an un-American. No one likes to do it, but we exactly. all have to admit it happens. Exactly. I think of you know populations like Iceland. Icelanders embrace failure as something that is inherently part of learning in life, in school, in work. It's it's a cultural concept. Failure is not a cultural concept in the same way in the US. It's something we don't talk about. We push it away. We don't really want it to doesn't happen. open up that box. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and what you've seen works and how to make that safe for people? I think the thing I struggle with and most people do is how to make it safe. You are okay sharing your failures with people that you trust. Right. Mm -hmm. You know that you won't necessarily be judged negatively. There's going to be some level of judgment, but it should be self-reflective as well as opening yourself up to allowing criticism. And, And that can be a very hard thing. I think we judge ourselves. We are our own worst critic, mm-hmm. um, but also hearing about things that may be perceived negatively from other people can be received in a tremendously negative way, as opposed to an opportunity for change or growth. So I, I think it would be great for us to be able to come together and, you know, put together a, a So Ben and Jerry ice cream. They're up in Vermont and we've vacationed on occasion and they have a a flavor graveyard. It's actually tombstones with the names of all the flavors that no longer exist in their production lines. And they have the description of what it was comprised of and the year or years, if it had a longer life cycle of when it had been available. I find that one to be interesting. It's like they kind of found a way to make fun of their failures in a way that, because you are welcome as a visitor on a factory tour to go walk through the graveyard and visit all the things that didn't work out. And so I think we haven't figured that out in an educational way, how to create a safe educational graveyard where it's like, these are things that just didn't work. I wish we could come to that. And I think people see it as um, demonstrating failure means that you aren't a trusted partner, that you aren't a successful business And that's definitely a perception that's valid. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's so much to be learned by saying, I tried this, here was the idea. It didn't work. And perhaps it's going to be the next person you partner with, if you were able to share that with, when they would say, actually, if you had just done this, they may have the missing piece that would enable you to re-envision something and for it to grow. And I think thinking that we get things right the first time is just not. it's unusual it, yeah. it's definitely unusual i mean i think the you know the software development world has managed to kind of build that in through you know agile development processes you know there's a space for retrospectives and for doing that work of identifying the things that that need to be in the graveyard i, I love that example having a, a kind of audit trail of you know where you started, what worked, what didn't work, and then repeat, you know, rinse and repeat. You did mention earlier on the potential re-emergence of print as, you know, something that might be increasingly appealing to learners as we all become, you know, a little bit, you know, online fatigued. Can you talk a little bit about that? My first experience right now is having high school and middle school age children who are now online seven hours a day, taking all of their classes virtually. 
while we wait for in-person schooling to reopen. And so one of the options provided was they've gotten access to an online library. All of the textbooks are now digital. All of the required reading is now digital. And so you're looking at like not only school hours, but all the after-school hours and all reading. It's been made available free. That's fantastic. It's been just, you know, the open source, it's great. But now you're going, but now it's just continuing this screen time. And I wonder what um, my doctors are thinking about all of this. But the option was also given that if you would prefer a hard copy of a particular something, you know, let your teacher, let your school know. And so they can try to supply that to you. And so you're going... If we're all online all day, if we're online for our research, if our healthcare clinicians that we're working with are not only, you know, trying to do their education this way, but electronic medical records and everything, and you need a break, I'd be interested to see someone do a study on journals and any statistics that will turn up in the next year about do people just suddenly get excited about their journal showing up again because it's a it's a break they can sit outside they can take it with them and mm-hmm. how education is going to be impacted by the environment now that we're in I think it's an interesting point and actually and I'll have to look this up but I'll, I'll try and put it in the show notes I think if you look at the ACCME annual reports it's interesting how consistent print education materials have been over the last decade or so. So there's a fairly strong contingent of learners that really appreciate print and whether that's about its portability or its tactility or the particular journals that, you know, JAMA and the New England Journal are two of the journals that most physicians consistently identify as key to their learning, regardless of what specialty that they're in. So it'd be interesting for anyone out there who is uh, research-minded. Yeah, uh, Audrey has thrown you <laughs> thrown uh, the down now. a sword of challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps that's a good place for us to wrap up. Is there anything else that we haven't really talked about that you'd like to um, just flag up before we, we end our conversation about maybe the value of education or what working in this field has given you personally? I would tell you that no day has ever been the same. And I think early on, that's what I kind of craved, not to get stuck into a routine. Um, And that's definitely not what working within our industry provides. It's insane. It's crazy. It's challenging. It requires us to be flexible and creative. And I just look forward to continuing to see all of the bright ideas that people will bring to the table and develop as we move forward. And we look forward to all the bright ideas from Excalibur Medical Education. Thank you, Audrey, for spending time with me today. Thank you, Alex. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Audrey. I love that serendipity plays a role in the way that most people find their path into medical education. And how significant creativity turns out to be in designing education that matters and that is meaningful. It's interesting, too, how important failure turns out to be in learning. And Audrey touched on this. In fact, many of us probably grew up being told to learn from our mistakes, but that's not something many educators necessarily practice in their own work. 
Yet educational reformer John Dewey viewed failure as instructive, as an opportunity to receive feedback, which after all is a key factor that gives us permission to reflect and course correct when we're learning something new. Perhaps like Icelanders, as described in Eric Weiner's book, The Geography of Bliss, we all need to start embracing failure just a little bit more. Until next time.